All the top ladies hairdressers, Vita Zazun, all those guys, Trevor Sorby, they were all barbers, oddly enough. They, they learned to cut. Uh, well, when, you, when you're cutting gents here, you haven't much margin for error, if I put it that way. You shouldn't have margin for error anyhow if you're doing the job properly. But uh, when you go to ladies then, uh, if you snip here and there, well, it wouldn't be noticed. She has more hair than a man, but if you miss out on a man, you, you can see it a mile away. <laughs> Larry Hingerton, barber and musician. In 1951, at the age of 21, Larry left Mayo for London. There was nothing there really in, 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 in Ballinrobe to, to nobody else to learn from, sort of. But um, I went to the Gents Academy on t- every Tuesday night. That was we, we met that night and uh, you started at the very beginning, went right through the whole doings. And it was Western uh, London barbers that took it on themselves to try and perfect the trade amongst uh, incoming barbers. And... Uh, they took over a barbershop there where there were about 14 or 15 hydraulic chairs. It was where all the embassies were. There was a barbershop there during the day and they, they booked it then for the night for the training. And then I wanted to get questioned experience and the ads on the, the hairdresser's journal read um, wanted hairdressers of the West End of London must have Western experience. But how could you get Western experience if you couldn't get in? So the, the, I went around to a manager, Meekers in Piccadilly, one day, and I, I put the story to him, and he said, uh, yeah, we might be needing somebody. So he gave me a trade test, and uh, when I finished, he said, maybe in the next few weeks we might need somebody. And I did get the job after that. So I had Western experience as well then. DA was the famous haircut at the time, and it left a little bit longer, swept into a DA at the back. It took anatomy, as they called it at the time. That's why it got the, the, the title DA. Most young fellas had that. And then the Tony Curtis came, and the crew cut was reborn as well. Women's, uh, the Italian boy was the, the, the in thing, the Italian style, they called it then. It was a very short, casual cut. I was looking up the Melody Maker, which was the, the musical book at the time, or magazine, and uh, I saw John Shakespeare, who was giving tuition in West Kensington. So I rang him up and made an appointment, and it, just, it worked out to be £1 an hour in 1951, and it was about one-fifth of my wages, but I used to go weekly to him. 
as the weeks went by, we got into conversation about the bands he played with. He was playing with Sidney Lipton's band in Grosvenor House, which was a nightclub and at the time. And uh, then he said he also played with the Big Lewis band. And I said, by any chance, did you tour Ireland with the, the Big Lewis band? He said, I did. So I said, I saw you in 1947. That's right, he said. I saw you in Tune, I said, that night. He was lead trumpet with the, with the, uh, the Big Lewis Orchestra. I tell you, in this house, what are you rooting for? Yeah. Well, this, I trumped for Johnny Shakespeare. I bought from Johnny Shakespeare. Uh, he was brilliant, a brilliant teacher. And it's a collector's item now because uh, on the internet you could see the, there are medals on it. It's a new creation, Besson. It has medals uh, engraved on it. And uh, it could be worth a few, a few grand now, you know. But it's fairly well battered now. Uh, I haven't blown it for years. <laughs> Would you believe? It? It's terrible, you know. Wait, let's see, can I blow it? I put in the, the old piece I was using in the single horn. Make it even blow. See how bad I'm blowing it now, <laughs> without practice. But it still works. And even the valves didn't stick. Normally they, they corrode this old blue, blue mould on it. And I always noticed, I used to use what we called gob oil. It was the spittle, we, instead of the ordinary oil and the ordinary valve oil. And uh, uh, I used that for years. I always claimed that it was a cure for the common cold. It kept me free of colds for years. So maybe there's something there. Larry's father ran a barber shop in the front room of the family home on Bowgate Street in Ballinrobe. I was just 11, and of course in those days you had shaving in the barber shop. The, um, we had 200 shaves on a Saturday, and I had to do the lathering, you see. And my grandfather made a little stool for me, so I was so small to get up to do the lathering. And if I didn't have the beards off of my dad, I know how to get, you know... So he shaved them. I lathered them, he shaved them. Was, you finished at one o'clock on a Saturday night from half nine in the morning. Well, you broke for your dinner, your, your, your lunch and your tea and whatever. He had a certain number for two shaves in the week and he had two customers that had three shaves in the week. That was the maximum at any time. They, they, they were afraid to shave themselves, I think. They, they, on the, counter, they, they, the, the razor had a bad name. It was called a cutthroat. And... Consequently, they, they were afraid that they might cut their throat with it. Even when the safety razors came on the market, they um, they were afraid to use them for years. But people in the country, they're all right. The farmers, all right, they had uh, cut throat razors. They used them. They brought them in from time to time to have them set. It was the place, especially on a Saturday night. Everybody wanted to get done on Saturday. Had their hair cut, and they, they had to be shaved before Sunday. That was a must. And uh, the crack we would have on Saturday night, it was, it was a meeting place. They were thrown out of pubs and out of... Uh, there were no cinemas, no, no, no films, no, no pictures allowed by the clergy or dancing. And uh, so it was a, a visiting place. And they sat down then and chatted away after. And a lot of slagging went on, you know, with the old guys, you know. They, 
take the mickey out of one another, both girlfriends, you know, that they wouldn't have any of. I remember one case, this guy, uh, he's, uh, the girlfriend packed in with him, you see, and uh, this other guy said to him, uh-huh, he said, you made the mistake, same mistake as I made, you'll ever see in the daylight. <laughs> Experience, except in the choir or the the uh, one of the Christian brothers, he he was very musical, and uh, he had a singing singing class. If you were if you could sing, you were in the singing class. If you if you weren't if you were a crow, they put you in the in the art class. They used to call it the the uh, drawing class in those days. We didn't call it art then in those days. My mother played the old accordion. The, the the melodion, as they used to call it. But my dad didn't, but they had, we, I knew all the, the top tunes at the time from them, you know. They had all the, any any new numbers that came out. They had a gramophone. That was before the radio. I didn't even have a radio then. Uh, the first instrument I had an interest in was the clarinet. Um, listened to Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and those guys. It sounded very sweet. And uh, they didn't have any... In, Clarinets in the town band at the time. They were getting them in, but they never got them in, I don't remember. So they asked me would I blow a cornet. So I was able to blow the scale of C after being shown the finger on the cornet. And so I was left on that, and that was it. And uh, that was 1947. And I was doing the Leaving Cert in June, and this was in May. And I said, I'm not going to miss out on, on learning a bit of music. So uh, that's when I started, in the, on a cornet. And then I, I bought a trumpet about six months later. I remember the day I, came, I had to save up three pounds five as a deposit. And uh, Cotts stores in Kilcock, they were the only people doing our purchase. And uh, they, it was one pound nineteen and ninepence a, a month after. And I never failed with the, the instalments. I was afraid of my life they would take it off me, you know? So. Uh, I made sure that I, I had the, the money every month for it as well, and it was paid off. First band I played in would be about three weeks after I got the trumpet. I knew about eight tunes and uh, pretended I was playing the other ones. Then there were two accordions, and that was the famous spud band, we called it. We had no pom-pom for the drums, the bass drum, and I said, the only thing I could do, I went up to my mother, and she gave me a half stone of spuds. And we took the spud down, and I think it lasted until the national anthem was played. The last spud broke then. Each, they break after, after a couple of minutes, you see. And uh, that was it. The first 12 months I had the trumpet, I practised every night. I, didn't, I wouldn't miss a night to try and build up my reading as well. I was very slow on reading, you see. But we had a very good uh, bandmaster... Sir Cooper, he was um, a chap from uh, Clara in Offaly. And uh, Sir was brilliant. He, if you wouldn't learn from him, you wouldn't learn from anybody. He was so good. Very good teacher, but a, a, a smashing trumpet player as well. He, he was playing with this uh, Powers band at the time. 
but they they were excellent band, an excellent band at the time. They were playing orchestrations when the, a, lot of the, a lot of the other bands didn't. But it was a great feather in the right to be able to play orchestrations. They weren't done that much, mostly piano sheets, and each instrument uh, or each instrumentalist transposed to suit his particular instrument. As you know, they're, they aren't all pitched the same. Okay. Fifty three I opened a barbershop in Westport and um, I, I went to Castle Bar first and I couldn't get a premises in Castle Bar at the time and there was a premises uh, available in, in Westport. I moved in there then. And the Tony Curtis, Tony Curtis style and the crew cut, I took them back with me. Hit all the boys in, in Westport. They were looking very fashionable before any of the other towns because they, we were ahead of the posse. A few years later then, I decided I'll, I'll hop over to London. I'll do a formal course in ladies' hairdressing. I was 57 and... Uh, Came back, and I, I did a bit of experience in salons first. Came back then and opened a salon in, in Westport. And I was the only man in doing ladies' hairdressing at the time, so I had an advantage in that respect. You know, the, the ladies thought a man could do the hair better than the, the women could do it, so... Then the, the bob came in, was reborn in the 60s, where you had a big bump on the, the crown of the head. And that was uh, Vida Sassoon that brought that in. And the uh, cutting technique for that was terrific entirely. I remember going over to London and learning it from a, a guy that influenced uh, Vida Sassoon, Richard Conway. And so I stayed on and worked with them for a few months then before I came home. But um, Beehive, that was in the 60s as well. And uh, it was all back home, of course, and brought right up. You started from the back and worked it back. That's how you got that effect. And um, girls wouldn't let it down for about... They'd just back home and put lacquer in it every every day. They'd leave it up there for about a, a month. And if they wanted to scratch their head, then they used a knitting needle to get in. Yeah, it's terrible. We call them flea hives afterwards, <laughs> not bee hives. Yeah, Princess Grace, she stayed in Ashford Castle when she was here and she came through the town. But I remember following her down James Street and having to look to see the back of her hair. She had it pinned up, you see, at the back. And she's sitting in the back of the car, so I, I followed the car down to see, have a good look at it. Any, any of the uh, stars, did all this, I mean, show you a bit of paper, uh, photographing paper. Say, could you, could you do that? Oh, yeah. If an old lady of 80 comes in and says, I want to look like Marilyn Monroe, you just say yes. We'll fix you up on it. But we'll change it a little bit here and a little bit there. And she was happy then. But if you said no to her, you'd lose the customer. <laughs> Uh, this is a hydraulic chair. Uh, these were manufactured in Sweden. 
but they, 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 it was in America they, they were used mostly originally and they must have imported them from Sweden this, this chair must be at least 80 years old anyhow and uh, and you can you can pump them up you see split level it's you can cut hair better at split level rather than um, if you're looking down at a head you're much better off to have it up because back as well you know, um, it's probably jammed now in the olden days for shaving a headrest it fitted in here customer put his head back and he shaved them you see that was it still some places in Galway you know, maybe in Dublin he'll have a hot towel shave put on the hot towels softens the beard and uh, when you're finished then they, they put on another one and then they give you a cold compress afterwards you tempered your hands into taking using hot towels so it's very difficult to take a, a steaming towel out you know it's just it's it, um, good service. As an instructor with FOSS, Larry trained many young hairdressers from the West. He retired 21 years ago, but now at 80, Larry still helps out at the local barbers. His skills and expertise always in demand. Are you busy with something else? Keep going, you know. Yeah? Yeah. That's better You still play music, you know? Still play a bit of music, yeah. yeah. Still do a bit. You play a bit of jazz now. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Well, keeps you young, you know. That's right. Yeah. Keeps you going, huh? Does indeed. I wasn't long home when this guy came in to me. He said, uh, they're looking for a band in Ackle. And pulled a colleague in Eichel and uh, GA wanted to look for a band for Sunday night. And he said, I have a drummer. This was Austin Foley now. He, uh, he played accordion. And uh, he said, I have a drummer. And I said, I can get a sax player in Ballinrobe, an elder sax player. And I'd be playing trumpet. And my sister might sing, I said, as well, in marriage. So. The Larry Hingleton group, we called it at the time. That started it off. We started the West Coast Jazz in 1982. Uh, Michael Cadden, the Ascot, asked us if we do a bit of jazz film. So we got a band together. Noel Feeney and myself, they got it together. And we played in, in um, the Ascot open air out at the back. And it was, it was a great uh, innovation at the time to have something jazz especially and have it open air. It was only, the only Dixieland jazz. Mike Roberts, Mike came and played trumpet with us as well. In fact, I was playing, we were two trumpets at the time. And... Uh, Mike had a lot of arrangements from the olden days, um, the orchestrations of the, the Dixieland bands. So I, um, I got the trombone then, and I, I didn't want to get a slight trombone because I had to learn the bass clef. I had to learn the fingering for that. It was a different fingering to the treble clef that I was reading before that. And then I would have to learn the position of the slides that I know all right, but I wouldn't get them fast enough. So at my age, I said to heck with it. I'll get a, I'll try and get a valve trombone, and which I, which I did. But they're very difficult to get a good one. You have to put these ones together. Mm-hmm. 
it's pitched the same as the trumpet. It's pitched in B flat, so there's not much trouble in 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 changing over except the mouthpiece. <laughs> Roland, Roland Sauer, my, my friend from Germany, he plays a slide trombone. He's been a trombone player. So he arrives in one day when he came on holidays and he said, would you teach me how to play the valve trombone, Larry? And I says, oh, I will, of course. So anyhow, then he took it out and uh, he said, it's yours, he said. <laughs> Go down to Peaches on a Tuesday night for the sit-in and for the gig with the boys. And it's something to look forward to. It's, it's kind of my night out. Almost 18 years now since I started jazz sessions here. I must check it out. Exactly. You're the one with the memory, I can't yeah. remember. It'll be 18 years. Practically, anyhow. It could be, yeah. yeah. I know we were well going in 1993. Yeah. That's 16 years ago. Yeah. So it must be 17 years now. I know. Yeah, previous years. 92. Peter Duffy, he's a very versatile musician. He plays concert flute, clarinet, alto, tenor, baritone, saxes, keyboards, and sings, and he, just, he does them all well. He's you'd envy him really. That's the dominoes. Remember the dominoes? Oh, the dominoes. Yeah, yeah. I heard of you. Yeah, didn't I, 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 went, I wasn't Billy dancing Barrett, then. Yeah. Brendan, Buddy Holly, glasses, myself. Uh, Frankie Ben. Was it you? Uh, he's deceased. Tony Barrett. Tony Barrett. Yeah. This is a, a photograph of, of, of a second cousin of my father's, George Duffley's orchestra in Dundalk. Oh, go on. Yeah. Jerry O'Connor gave me that photograph. He's still alive. His oh. son plays sax. Jerry was telling me a story when uh, he would play with them. You know, everywhere, the, the, when you're a saxophone player, you practice all the time. And you were kicked out of different <laughs> flats and competition. And they used to, get, with a, a flashlight, into, into a wardrobe. Oh, to yeah. practice. <laughs> <laughs> Peter calls the tunes. Um, it all depends on his form as well, I think, and he look around, he might see somebody in the audience that liked a particular tune, we play that one. Well, let's all go to Dixieland uh, Instrumental. It's a tune called Muskrat Ramble. <laughs> 
judge comes in as a guest like myself and uh, he is so damn good on the on the trumpet he's very very good brilliant trumpet player Tommy is an excellent drummer and uh, one of the best in the country Jazzy Larry is my email. My daughter in Dublin is pretty good. And my, my grandchildren, of course, they're they are marvellous, you see. They, the trouble is they show you too quickly and they're gone again, you know. <laughs> That's it. I like to be shown slowly. And, and from my, my experience in teaching in force, you did everything slowly and you made sure everybody knew what you were talking about. That they And ask questions as well, of course. And because some people are afraid to ask questions in case they might feel a bit foolish. And I always say, that question you asked, somebody else might have asked that, and they were afraid to ask it. So it's knowledge for them as well. Here we are now, the whole list of those people that passed away. It's very handy. Sometimes you, you, some, somebody might say that you might have known, and you wouldn't know, it'll be too late then to go to the funeral when you, when you do find out. And you get the local news as well on it, you know, which is quite good. Anything that's happening in the area. You can book in, you know, your time on the golf sheet in, in the golf club as well, you know. You can get up in front of you, you know what time is available. At the moment I'm using the old... Um, I'm looking up the the play, the Covey's play they, have, they did in Westport Hill during the summer. It's only on internet. So it's it's funny, all right. It's it's going to be a great publicity for for Westport. So you can get it up on YouTube as well, which is great. They were always very homely people. They they, they made you welcome when you came. That was the, the main reason I think that the Westport and it's Westport of the Welcomes they always called it, and uh, I think that. That's def- definitely true, all the way to Boulder. Uh, this is McGing's pub now on High Street. and uh, So we do a, a jazz gig there once a month, a few of us. And, uh, it's, it's a great all night. It's, it, the, the crowd are part of the, 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 the scene as well, you know. There's good reports with the audience from the band. You see the green building there now, Paddy Muldoon's place there. It's an auctioneering place. That was there where I opened the barber shop, and uh, then the left yellow house there. That's where I opened the ladies' hairdressing. Just coming down to the mill by the guard of the barracks, and uh, this is the fair green where they have the pop festivals every summer. And uh, the, the the river you see there now, that's a canal. The true bed of the river runs under. And the bridge there, it runs in the Bank of Ireland, the Post Office, the Ulster Bank, under the Railway Hotel, under the church. But certainly, the, uh, it is a design town, and you, you can see it, the continental touch. 
there with these streets running obliquely. It's a lovely, lovely mail. It's lo- beautifully lit up at night. That was a bit they did about me. Yeah, they presented me with the I'm, I'm an icon now, you see. I'm one of these Peter Mark and all these fellas are in the wrong waters. Uh, Peter Mark and myself went to school in the the Wellis School in Euston Road in London in 1957. I used to go every Tuesday night to learn colouring. A guy called Phil Rennie was a brilliant uh, colourist. And uh, I arrived in one day, one evening, and uh, this lady, she was a Dublin girl. She she was doing part-time teaching there. And uh, she said, come over, Larry. She said, we have a, a fellow countryman of ours here tonight. So she introduced me to this guy, Ronnie Keaveney. And uh, so we became, became great buddies. He was living in Chapel's Bush, very near where I was at the time. He was living with the married aunt, and I was living with the married uncle. And uh, so we used to meet every other Sunday. Then he'd have lunch in in, in my in my uncle's place, and I'd go around to his place, his aunt's place for lunch. So anyhow, that was it. I came home that autumn, and uh, I um, opened my cell in Westport. And uh, a couple of it was nineteen. But, about a year or two afterwards, I was in Dublin at a demonstration in the Hibernian Hotel, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, this guy tapped, tapped me on the shoulder and he said, uh, you wouldn't be Larry by any chance? I said, that's right. Oh, this is Ronnie. He says, where'd you come out of? So, well, he said, a brother of mine, we have a salon on Grafton Street. We call ourselves Peter Mark. And Peter was his other name as well, and Mark. And, uh, oh, God, I said, so that was it. In 2007, Larry was inducted into the Irish Hairdressers Federation Hall of Leaders. I got a, a registered envelope and I said, what the heck is this? And just, they, they wanted to make sure that I would be there if, if I would accept it. So uh, I threw it aside at the time. I didn't bother that you were, uh, you were chosen as, a, as an icon. Yeah. An icon of leaders, I think that's the title there. So... Um, I picked it up again, so I, she rang me then, the secretary of the Hairdressing Federation, and uh, oh, I said, I will, of course. I had no intention of going at all, no whatsoever. That night, then, I, the, the president of the different awards, he had to make a little speech then as well, and this, that, and the other. But um, we had a disco and all after, you know, which was in the, the um, Shelburne Hotel. It was lavish, too, all just dressed, strictly dressed, and all that sort of flavour. One of the guys that uh, he was awarded posthumously, he um, he died some time before that. So I was looking ahead and died before I got it. <laughs> OK, we're going to invite Les Allen back on, on the stage again uh, for the last number of the evening. Our special guest tonight, Larry Hewden of Val Trombone from Westport. This is Take the Air Train. I never intended, I wouldn't have ten, intended to go into it professionally, playing professionally, because if you could manage without it, all the better. 
But if you had to, it would be a different story. But you can enjoy music much better when it's not your, your bread and butter job, you know. Yeah, I, I loved hairdressing and, of course, the music speaks for itself. I love that as well. So I was very lucky to have two, an occupation and a hobby as well. I'll always like to, to keep doing something, no matter what it is. I still act as a teenager, kind of, you know. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I don't know why. And I worked with the youngsters for a long time as well, you see. They probably kept me young as well when I was in force for years. So it's all in the mind. Your, your age is only a number. That's all we have for If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.